Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line, a national security podcast focused on technology, innovation, and policy. I'm your host, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass. Joining me is co-host, retired U.S. Army Colonel Mark Solomons. Mark, how you doing? Hey, guys. How's it going? Doing all right this afternoon? Yeah, doing great. Uh, Looking forward to getting this part three episode posted uh, for Tuesday morning. And I guess before we jump into this conversation about artificial intelligence, let's just talk about a couple items that certainly popped on the radar today. And I think the one that was really capturing a lot of headlines was the uh, stock market, uh, the Dow and uh, the NASDAQ, S&P, a lot of headlines about how they've erased uh, most, if not all their losses for the year. And uh, it's it kind of, from a stock market perspective, is that V-shaped recovery that President Trump had long said was going to occur. So I'm just curious what you think about the stock market there. Yeah, that's interesting. I, a lot of folks have been saying it's doing well. Uh, is it a reflection of the economy? I seem to come down on the uh, the side of the economy certainly hasn't recovered, has a long ways to go, especially when you look at unemployment numbers. But if you got a lot of your uh, money or corporates have money tied up in the stock market, it's happy days again. And then hopefully it'll continue to trend upwards and somehow that money trickles down to to uh, companies and uh, eventually down to those uh, hardworking Americans out there trying to get their feet back on the ground. I suspect there's probably a little bit more of a disconnect between the stock market and Main Street, right? I mean, Certainly, if you're an individual who has the money invested in the market, like you said, you're probably happy days, feeling pretty good about the recovery you've seen. And what I'd love to hear more about is what does the recovery or the lack thereof look like right now? Because we, we've we watched over the last two months is, I mean, there's been tens of millions of individuals, tens of millions of Americans who have had to apply for and receive unemployment benefits. The kind of game changer was at the end of last week, you know, on Thursday, they report their jobs numbers. And as they wrapped up the month of May and started reporting that information, they showed that instead of losing millions of jobs, they now say that around uh, 2 million jobs were created. And so that would certainly be great news if it was that quick of a recovery, but everything else we've seen seems to point that it's not. So I I suspect there's going to be a lot more information to follow. If nothing else, it was a, it was a good news kind of juice to the exuberance and consumer confidence. And if nothing else, that alone is probably worth the squeeze. Yeah, definitely going into the summer months. There certainly is a prosperous uh, projection of you know where we are and uh, what possibly could happen as we, we move along. I mean, normally summers are a great time for the economy. Everybody's out vacation, spending money, you know, taking trips there. So uh, hopefully that starts to pick back up again. So I guess much like we did with coronavirus and some other aspects, we will keep our eyes on this one and see what happens and what develops over the coming weeks and months. But let's go ahead and shift to the second piece of news that really caught our attention. And that's the fact that President Trump is now looking to withdraw somewhere on the order of around 9,000 active duty troops from Germany. What do you got on this one? Yeah, I just uh, saw that pop up on the radar screen again. Now, keep in mind, they've been, the administration has been talking about this for many months. I remember you know, last fall, they were 
talking about the pros and cons of withdrawing nine to 10,000 troops out of Germany. Uh, Solomon's opinion, I personally think it's a bad idea just from a number of strategic initiatives uh, tied to NATO and all the countries there and you know what we've been promising our NATO allies. Having said that, I'll come back and I'll go back to the national defense strategy, which you had a big hand in uh, riding with a great power competition. And let's let's uh, say China is our pacing threat. So maybe the administration is thinking, well, if I'm not going to have 10,000 troops tied up in a Germany, I can place them somewhere, you know, give them give the Navy a boost or the Marines a boost so they can up their forces in the Pacific. We're going to probably see a shift in policy as we uh, move into the fall here. But again, this is all predicated on who wins in November. If things flip in November, I think you may see a steady uh, shift back to status quo. But I don't want to get way out ahead of myself right now. We'll just stay with the 10,000. And again, I say it's a not a smart move, but time will tell. This is an example of the status quo versus possibly restructuring for the future. And it's always a very challenging moment in time when any organization, or in this case, a country says, we want to more fully employ the national security strategy that was published at the end of 2017, the national defense strategy for the military that was published in early 2018. Because you're right. I mean, when you have a lot of troops stationed overseas in Europe, have a lot of forces stationed in the Middle East, that was yesterday's fight, the folded gap for Europe. Or if you're talking about uh, the war on terror, which is no longer the primary pacing threat for the United States of America, but rather it's that emerging state via state or state versus state competition with Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and of course with the asterisk that terrorism is still the ever-present threat. So something to be mindful of, but not the priority. So as you mentioned, I mean, because of that, you're going to have different programming priorities. You're going to want to invest in new technologies. You're going to want to start reshaping the force, much like President Trump has done with creation of the Space Force. That money's got to come somewhere. And you yourself, I think, made a great point in a previous podcast saying with the coronavirus, with the economy taking a hit, you're not going to be seeing these $750 billion budgets for years on end. There's likely to be a dip. If not this cycle, then the next cycle it's going to persist for some period of time. And so if you're going to take that hit, where, where does that money get saved? But, but you're right. There's always a lot of hand-wringing. And, and certainly our international allies and partners, they read a lot into the moves that America makes. And NATO, primary amongst them, Germany, of course, being one of the other nations involved with NATO, there's 29 total. You take U.S. out, there's 28 other nations that are involved. Germany's one of those. So what do they read into this? Is this, as has been touted, kind of a heavy-handed tactic by Trump to punch back at Angela Merkel of Germany for you know, the way she's responded to some of Trump's moves, or is this truly for altruistic reasons? So I guess more news to come on this one, whether or not we actually go through with it. Yep, I agree. So I guess the one last thing it kind of raises is uh, certainly, I think we've seen in the news where President Trump has postponed the G7 summit. Typically, the seven largest industrialized nations get together especially the ones that are uh, allies and partners, such as France and Germany and, and some others there. So that was delayed until later into the fall. And President Trump has also called for greatly expanding G7. He wants to bring Russia in. And I believe he also talked about bringing China in. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you think G7 should stay the way it is? Or do you think that there's good reason to expand it to allow other nations to participate? Uh, yeah, my I think anytime you can get organizations to expand to include everybody, you know, you, you just get different uh, views, viewpoints, thoughts, et cetera, into the mix there. And at the end of the day, if you're trying to establish some kind of a 
balance throughout the world there. You want to have the, uh, all the, the great powers involved there and having a seat at the table and, and sharing their views. I mean, I think if you look back through history, it's probably uh, nothing new. We, back after World War II, we had all these same players at the table and uh, other, uh, other venues there, and it seemed to have a defining uh, impact on, on how the world was shaped there. Of course, right after you know, Korea, it kind of fell apart, but that's, again, the nature of the beast there with the, these organizations. But in the, in the end of the day, I, I give Trump credit on this uh, for trying to, to bring more folks to the table there. If he can do it, great. But the, the thing you can keep in mind with all this is the elections in November. I mean, all this is kind of a you know last-minute dealings here, and if things flip, uh, who knows uh, if these deals are going to be captain that's what these countries are going to be looking for it you know I, you know let's turn to iran for a second there they thought well we're going to have this iran agreement for many years on the obama administration trump comes in and pulls out of it and now they're left shaking their heads like mayor we can't trust you yada 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 so other countries are kind of going to be looking for that as well with the u.s as they move forward in deals um again we'll just have to wait and see what happens let's also remember afghanistan's on the table president trump has said he wants to pull everyone out of Afghanistan shortly here. Is that going to happen before the election? Some say yes. Uh, others are still kind of uh, thinking through the through uh, through the pros and cons of it. So I think it's a, a questionable move at this point. Well, I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan, from a political sense, certainly makes sense. President Trump has made it a point throughout the past three and a half years. You know, one of his favorite lines he loves to use to really stir up his base and frankly for he can use in any messaging construct is promises made promises kept. So if he still has an eye towards that type of a mantra heading into November where he wants to point at actual changes, not just rhetoric, not just a signed executive order that really has no teeth, but if he wants to point to no kidding changes that occurred, of course he can point to space force. He can point to some of the summits he's had with other world leaders. And he could certainly, if he brought the troops home from Afghanistan, and declared uh, mission complete, then that would be another large one. Uh, regardless of your politics, it would be at least a reality that he could point to. And so I, I suspect there's an element of that that he does care about and he's watching and looking for right now. And it's just whether or not the people in between him and uh, actual execution are moving at the speed of relevance for him. So, but that all being said, you know, it's always good to catch up on the current of events, but let's go ahead and get into the main thrust of today's episode. We are on part three of a three-part discussion on artificial intelligence. So in part one, we talked about the basics of AI with Steve Escaravage, a senior vice president from Booz Allen Hamilton. And the part two, we talked with retired U.S. Marine Corps Colonel Joe Larson about the AI strategy. And then today we're getting into some exciting topics because we're going to be talking again with Joe Larson about operationalizing artificial intelligence. So this is where the rubber meets the road where you get a chance to really take that algorithmic approach and now apply it to the real world and see what we can get. One of the things that we'll talk with Joe about, and I'm excited to hear about, is his thoughts on his previous project, which was Project Maven, which was one of the big artificial intelligence-related projects for the Department of Defense using AI to help with the evaluation of imagery and uh, intelligence gathering. So really looking forward to that. I'm curious, Mark, you know, from your standpoint, as, a, as an Army guy, as a guy who spent a lot of time in the field, when you think about AI, we've had two episodes now. What are you hoping to hear from Joe when we talk about operationalizing AI? Yeah, well, this, uh, this one really hits home for, for me there. I mean, at the end of the day, for the operator out in the field, how do you operationalize artificial intelligence? And I'm 
really looking to see uh, how Joe explains the, the culture of AI, the bureaucracy involved. You know, like what is DOD looking for there? So, you know, AI is a very complex mission set. So I'd be interested to hear Joe's take on uh, what DOD is looking at, the way you collect and engineer the data, and how you incorporate AI. Those are some of the big headlines I'm, I'm looking at right now. How about yourself? Certainly some of those. And like you said, the nice thing about Joe Larson is that we're not talking with someone who's a theorist or sitting in a lab somewhere hoping to make it work. As we introduced him in part two of this series, and we've already mentioned, he's a retired U.S. Marine Corps lieutenant colonel. He has uh, he was trained as an attorney, got his law degree from Stanford. He's worked for a number of AI companies, and he was involved with Project Maven as the deputy director, right? So here's an individual who has actually been on the front lines of national security, of technology, and bringing artificial intelligence into the Department of Defense. And unfortunately, you know, the podcast format only gives you so much time to actually explore these rabbit holes. But when you get a guy like Joe Larson, who's actually seen both the, the perils, but also the promises of AI, the pitfalls that can occur, the hard lessons learned as you go into incorporating a brand new technology, or at least a new to the Department of Defense technology in a lot of different regimes, it's very publicized now. You know, what has he learned from that, from walking down that path? Uh, what could other organizations learn from his experience? And I think that much like I said at the lead into this series, you know, you have a very small number of individuals who have been associated very closely and have worked deeply on this project and on artificial intelligence. Frankly, and, and for good reason, they should be in high demand right now because they're individuals who understand how the Department of Defense works, but they also understand that cutting edge technology and how you put those two together and the best way to do it and then pitfalls to avoid as you seek to do so. I tell you what, let's go ahead and get into the conversation with retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Joe Larson. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners, if you recall, last week Joe joined us. He was part, uh, part two of our episodes on artificial intelligence. He discussed with us the uh, creation of the Department of Defense's AI strategy. He also talked about some of the history that led up to the creation of that strategy and also how, how the federal government and the Department of Defense in general approach artificial intelligence and gave us a lot of great things to think about. Uh, just as a reminder for our listeners, so Joe Larson and I have gone back for a little over a year, maybe a year and a half at this point. He was the uh, former deputy chief for the Algorithmic Warfare Cross-Functional Team, more commonly known as Project Maven, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So that was that Vanguard AI program that really caught a lot of public notice. Uh, he most recently has served as the former head of business operations for Tolco Labs, which is an AI private equity organization focused on regulated industries. And I think probably my favorite part of your curriculum vitae is the fact that you're also an attorney. And so you graduated from Stanford in 2009, which is a pretty awesome achievement. So as we think about this part three of our three-part series on AI, you know, if you think back, part one was on the basics of AI. What is AI? How does it enable autonomy? You know, what does it really provide to any organization, not, not just in the national security space, but what can any organization gain from the, its implementation of artificial intelligence? We moved into part two with Joe as we talked about the AI strategy. And so now for part three, we really want to think about the uh, how you operationalize AI, how you take it from a laboratory and move it into the real world. And of course, like you heard in part two of our AI episode, uh, Joe was the deputy director for Project Maven and so therefore has had firsthand experience of that, of that learning curve and the, not only the successes, but also the pitfalls for operationalizing AI. So 
you know, Joe, with that being said, I kind of want to turn the floor over to you. Um, some of this is just kind of your lessons learned. Uh, how do you, you know, it's, it's easy to create AI in a lab. I've done that myself when I was a, even a college student, uh, created my first neural network back in 1996. And you can do that and you feed it some very well manicured data and you get some great results out. That's not necessarily going to be the case. In fact, it's definitely not going to be the case as you take something from the lab and you put it in the Department of Defense's case out into the field. So, you know, what are your thoughts, I guess, broad thoughts on operationalizing AI and then we'll take it from there. Um, yeah, I, I have some thoughts on this, just speaking as a, you know, private citizen that's worked AI both in government and some regulated industries, right, where bringing technology to bear is difficult, is that when you talk about the opera, operationalization of artificial intelligence, the application of artificial intelligence to a problem, um, not just in a laboratory, but in to where it achieves an impact for your mission objectives, where it does something for your you know, your organization, it revolutionizes a process, it optimizes a workflow, it enhances a human being to make better decisions, whatever it is. That in, in many ways, the artificial intelligence itself is the least interesting part of the equation. Um, you know, the, the classic example being uh, computer vision, right? Where uh, one can see the idea that it, an algorithm can detect and exceed a human being's capability in um, the detection of an object in image or video is one thing, but then using that in the real world is, is a completely different thing. The, the classic example I'll, I'll give is um, radiology. So of course there's a lot of hype around, um, and I'm not a doctor or a radiologist, just to be clear, but that um, you know, when you're scanning images for the detection of cancer, algorithms can be better than even the most informed doctors at achieving the results you seek. However, that doesn't mean you're ready to take that algorithm into a hospital and rely on it to make a life and death diagnosis, right? So in that case, operationalization is about um, understanding the culture, understanding the ethical limitations, understanding the bureaucracy, understanding the authorities, um, creating a plan and implementing a plan to integrate that AI into a, into a doctor's office or into a hospital environment so that the patient receives the absolute best care they actually can. Um, for the DOD, the, you know, the analogy there is um, a variety of use cases where um, AI has performed well in laboratory settings. It's operational, certainly in a variety of industrial settings in very specific ways. But um, the Defense Department brings a very complex um, you know, life and death critical mission set and the challenges around bringing that AI to bear are immense. So you could break out the pieces that are associated with operationalization outside of just the algorithm, right? Or just the AI technology. And it's everything from the, the way you collect and engineer your data to build that algorithm, the manner in which you build that algorithm, your engagement with industry or your reliance on machine learning engineers, the ways you test and evaluate that algorithm to make sure it performs the functions it's intended to perform, the way that that algorithm or that AI capability is then integrated and feedback is received from the people that are supposed to use it, um, how you build that, that cycle of feedback, how you build in an infrastructure, right, that's ready to employ artificial intelligence at scale across an organization, and then how you incorporate all of that feedback into your processes, which could risk everything from how you create budgets for AI capability, how you conduct contracting for 
AI capability, how you engage industry to solve these problems. These are all challenges I would put under the overall umbrella term of operationalization of a capability. So one thing that, that strikes me, so I like the way you said that, that AI is kind of the least interesting aspect of all of that, because it's really just a system, it's a process, it's a tool that helps enable all the things you just mentioned. So from your experience, as we're talking about operationalizing AI, where does the workforce fall into this? One, uh, how important is it to for training or to have an AI educated workforce? Uh, and then also, what are some of the concerns you've seen from the workforce as they consider the adoption of AI? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and a great thought, right? That AI is a, is a team sport. Um, too often in government, the tendency may be for um, either for senior leaders or for uh, mid-level program managers or for people on the edge performing a task to believe that AI is somebody else's challenge. And what that creates is an environment where then you're, um, we'll let the AI guys solve that, right? Or the AI, you know, the AI people solve that challenge. And that's going to lead to bad results because it's going to basically create a, a research environment, right? Where you're testing AI and iterating on it continuously within a laboratory using your researchers, but you're not actually solving any problems. I think there are, there are examples of that, right? In our our U.S. government today. So, um, so it is incumbent upon everybody in the chain of command to understand what these technologies can do. And education around artificial intelligence is an imperative. It needs to be part of every course um, that the Defense Department or the national security community brings to bear. One of the fundamental ways to think about that is um, if an organization is centered around just AI, do AI, sprinkle AI on it, it's, it's really likely to fail, right? The way AI has to work is that you have to have a problem. AI may end up being the solution to your problem. It may end up being a way to enhance solving your problem, but it's, you know, the most successful AI projects are not, hey, let's do some AI and find something to do there. I have a challenge. I have a problem I need to solve. I believe artificial intelligence can be an enabler to solve this problem. I believe if we employ it correctly, it may completely solve the challenge on our behalf. Um, but it's that detailed mission knowledge and the problem framing or what, around what you're trying to do that create the, the bare bones framework around a successful AI project. And you're not going to get that from your AI researcher, right? You're going to get that from, uh, for example, your, uh, your legal scholar, right? Who has to troll through pages and pages of due diligence documents to find anomalies that may be of value in an acquisition or in the DOD's case, contract anomalies. They understand what they're looking for and, and they're positioned to help the AI perform. So, um, you know, or another example, you're doing predictive maintenance, right? It's very unlikely an AI researcher who isn't familiar with the aircraft, its maintenance flaws, the way predictive maintenance, current maintenance processes are done, are going to devise an approach in the laboratory absent that iteration. So, um, you know, so I think the DOD and the way that they've evolved in AI is to incorporate its leaders, incorporate the mission personnel and make them primary stakeholders in bringing performant artificial intelligence to bear. So one of the common concerns I've heard about the adoption of artificial intelligence is that, okay, you're going to bring in artificial intelligence, it's going to automate some processes, and therefore the workforce becomes redundant, and you're almost ushering in your own demise, or that the workforce writ large is going to, is going to stumble and have a lot of issues. 
the counter I've most commonly heard to this, and I think at least it resonates with me, is that the better way to think about this is that artificial intelligence, typically the way it's currently manifests, is that it can do repetitive tasks very well, especially if they're narrowly defined tasks. So, you know, a lot of times as we think about uh, your experience with Project Maven, you're using airborne imagery, you're running processes on that. Well, when you change altitude, you change perspective. When you change a lot of these different elements or, or you change the environment, it becomes more difficult for an algorithm to, to help you because it wasn't trained in that particular environment. However, like you mentioned, with legal scholars or with someone doing, say, data processing, to me, artificial intelligence, when it's narrowly confined, really allows you to speed up the processing capability, speed up your ability to transcribe, to, to put it into a useful format. So your workforce can be elevated from doing like those menial tasks to higher level judgment. Um, now, again, that's, that's my perspective. So I'm curious, one, does that resonate? Do you, is that uh, accurate? Or do you think that there will be some concerns as you, as you see more widespread adoption of artificial intelligence uh, having impacts on the workforce? If you're in the workforce today and you do a cognitive task that an artificial intelligence can perform better than you, it is likely that you have reason to be concerned about the future of your job. However, I think the number of people who fall into that category are more limited than um, is widely realized. And also, in most cases, those people don't want to be doing that repetitive task. They want to be elevated to perform higher level cognitive functions that AI today can certainly not perform. So to break your question apart is, first of all, I would effusively agree with the core premise, which is that AI is very narrow, right? It's very brittle. And um, the degree to which you change the dynamics around that artificial intelligence. And again, I'm describing artificial intelligence in the sort of common terminology, terminology as it's used today around you know, uh, deep neural networks and um, convolutional networks, reinforcement learning, these kinds of technologies that take data and produce predictions. They are brittle. Um, Andrew Moore, who is the former dean of Carnegie Mellon, um, enjoys saying, for example, you know, artificial intelligence is extremely narrow. I'm paraphrasing. is extremely narrow. It can only do certain things. Despite that, it has the potential to completely revolutionize almost every human process that we engage in today. Um, another analogy that goes back to the 1960s, you know, an MIT professor who's a father of AI by the name of J.C.R. Licklider. He wrote an article on man-computer symbiosis, human-computer symbiosis, in which he hypothesized that there will be a day where machines will perform cognitive functions that outstrip the human brain, right? That you have artificial general intelligence, or the term I've seen, artificial superior intelligence, right? Better intelligence than the human brain. Um, You'll have a period of time before that where artificial intelligence can do some very narrow things. It's that interim period, right? It's the period in which you've begun developing AI, but it has not yet achieved general intelligence that brings the most opportunity for creativity in its applications and will allow human beings to elevate and perform those tasks for which humans are most constructed to solve, those things that involve common sense. AI doesn't have common sense. AI doesn't have creativity. AI does perform repetitive tasks. So I do think there is risk of automation reducing the workforce, but I think it's not necessarily reduction, it's a reallocation to higher level cognitive functions. So if you sit in a room today and you stare at images and videos and you, and you point out there's the thing and you write it down on a piece of paper, 
you're probably going to be out of a job, but you'll be reallocated to what does the aggregation of these things mean in context. And AI can't provide you that capability today, and it will be a very long time before it does. Yeah, as someone who early in my U.S. Navy career uh, would sometimes find myself doing those very menial tasks, I can tell you that uh, that would have been music to my ears if you'd say, hey, I could take you away from spending eight hours in a locked room parsing through a lot of information trying to find those golden nuggets. And uh, instead, like you just mentioned, uh, you can take those aggregated golden nuggets and then start helping your se- you know, senior leaders understand or better understand what do they really mean and how should we re- react and respond to it would be fantastic. Um, so let's take one step back real quick. So, so for the Department of Defense specifically, how, how do they operationalize AI? And then as you were involved with Project Maven, you know, what do you see as kind of those common like, lessons learned as you take something that is relatively brand new and you put it out in the field and you field it and you say, here it is, guys and gals, start using it. I've got to think that it wasn't a 100% adoption within the first week. Uh, I've got to believe that there were some pitfalls there. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about how did people approach the opportunity to engage with AI and then what did you learn from that? The common failure mode I've seen around AI at a program manager level. So um, I'm, you know, I'm not a senior leader by any means in the DoD, uh, sort of a program manager type that's responsible for implementing artificial intelligence. I fall into these pitfalls and I see others. I've, um, you know, described this as what I call the, the five stages of AI grief. Um, you know, uh, basically it runs like this. You know, the first is you own an outcome. You own a problem that you're trying to solve. You know, fundamentally, if that's not where you start, then don't even worry about AI because unless you've got something real you're trying to do where AI can enable you, um, you know, you're, you're, best, you're best to leave it alone. It's probably not worth your time. But if you've got a real problem to solve, the first tendency is to say, let's sprinkle some AI on this, right? Let's get a machine learning researcher in. So you do that and you, you may fool around with that for a period of time and you're likely to come to the conclusion that the AI simply doesn't perform to the level you need it to to accomplish your objectives, right? And the the reason why is when you brought in that machine learning engineer, you didn't surround them by the appropriate pieces to make them successful at their task. Um, And I can describe what those are, but an easy one, for example, is to have you provided them the right data to train their algorithms. Have you created a compute environment for them to build their algorithms? Do you have a test environment so you can measure the algorithmic performance against human performance today? Do you have an integration platform to deploy that algorithm and and routinely update it? So you're likely to be disappointed. Then you go to stage two, which is, I just need better data. Once I get better data, this will be solved. And um, you're likely then to spend six months of time gathering your data, looking at your data. Then you provide that data to your machine learning experts and your algorithm performance may increase by some measurable amount, but you're still somewhat likely to be disappointed. And you're starting to realize that even when the algorithm outstrips what you would call human performance, it's prone to errors that are completely unexplainable, right? AI is at its core a black box, you know, particularly when you're dealing with this neural net technology, this deep learning technology, and you can't trace back the result that it achieves to the inputs, right? Which is a real challenge for, you know, if if you're counting on that AI to achieve 100% precision, you're likely to be extremely disappointed. So, um, you know, that's stage two. Okay, I've gathered my data and I'm still unimpressed. Uh, maybe a little bit better, but still unimpressed. Stage three is I just need to engineer my data, right? I need to make it more robust. I need to infuse it with other techniques. Um, and once I do that, 
you know, my algorithms will be so performant that it solves my problems. And um, you go through that process, right? You bring in your data scientists, you may tailor your data, you may improve your compute environments, you may, you know, try new techniques, new frameworks, new tooling to build your algorithms. And what you'll likely see is a significant in, in, impact in performance, right? You'll see the performance of your algorithms increase. If it's detecting anomalies in unstructured text, for example, you'll start to see it aggregate, you know, and describe entities and create relationships that are very good. But you're still going to say, okay, you know, I, I don't think even though this algorithm is very good, that I even know really what to do with it. And that enters into the fourth phase, which is how do I integrate this thing? You know, how do I get this thing to run within a system? Then you go back and you look and you realize, wait a minute, you know, um, I started in the beginning by worrying about the algorithm and I'm not thinking about my user interface. I'm not thinking about my compute capabilities on the edge. I'm not thinking about whether I have access to commercial cloud. You know, I've just focused in on the AI components. And because of that, I built a performant lab algorithm that there's, I can't do anything with it, right? Um, and um, that's likely to entail some period of grief as you work through and you figure out those issues. And then the fifth stage I would call is the realization stage, right? Where you're like, wait a minute, my problem was never really an AI problem to begin with. My problem was a modernization problem. My problem was, um, you know, the fact that I have an infrastructure that uses old technology. It doesn't have compute on the edge. I don't have access to commercial cloud. I don't have techniques and tooling to do test and evaluation. I don't have a updating cycle of continuous integration, continuous delivery of capability. You know, basically somebody comes in every six months with a disk and updates my system and that's how I get my patches and refreshes. And by the way, we're not due for a full system upgrade for another three years, right? And in that environment, you simply cannot have artificial intelligence perform. So uh, that's, those are the grief stages. And I would just inverse that and say, if you're the PM and you're thinking about operationalization of AI, you need to start at that last phase first. And you need to think about what are the component pieces that are required outside of the AI capability for the capability to manifest? What is the system the AI is integrated in? Is it using modern technology? Is it containerized? Can it be updated? Can you do continuous integration, continuous delivery of algorithms? Can you do iterative testing? Can your system pull out and replace an algorithm full scale when a new capability is developed in the research community within six months? If the answer to any of those is no, operationalization starts there, right? It starts with surrounding infrastructure. Um, so that's kind of the advice I would give, you know, to any, um, you know, 05, 04, uh, you know, Marine Corps, Army, Navy, Major, Lieutenant Colonel that owns a mission set to start thinking about those pieces before diving right into the AI components. Well, I'm going to, you know, we're a fairly widely listened to podcast. I think before we started recording, I shared, you know, somewhere on the order of about 35, 36 nations, you know, tune in and, and listen. So I would draw it one line further and say, look, it's not even just the U.S. military. It's anybody thinking about adoption of AI and bringing it into your organization, whether it's nonprofit, commercial, government, uh, should listen to what Joe just said because, you know, to me, that's one of those fundamental tenets of leadership that are so critically important. In fact, uh, you know, I've got my next book that's in the pipeline right now. It comes out in September. And one of my leadership tenants I share is to anticipate problems. And realistically speaking, that's exactly what you just shared was uh, you could go into AI, like you said, you could sprinkle some AI fairy dust on top and hope that you're going to get great results, but you're not going to get the results you want. And you'll be frustrated when you 
spend a lot of money, time, and effort to to pursue the AI dream and realize it's not really there unless you anticipate those problems, unless you have a very thoughtful and deliber- deliberative design process. And you can say, okay, this is the specific well-bounded problem we want to solve. And like you mentioned, either yes or no, can AI actually help us? If the answer is yes, then have a really good plan lined out and how you're going to actually adopt it. One other thing I was going to mention is uh, you, you used a term that I think some of our list- listeners may not be too familiar with, and that is compute on the edge. And so one of the companies I joined when I left government service as their chief strategy officer is an AI related company. And so it was interesting to see how the federal government, especially the US military is pursuing artificial intelligence, because I think when people think AI, you know, a lot of it, as you mentioned, the cloud, right? So you might have a mainframe with tons of information, tons of computing power, a lot of memory storage, so you can hold all that data you said wasn't critically important on on site or in, or in a cloud somewhere. And so you could do all your compute there. But the reality is if you're part of the US Special Forces community, if you're a aviator on the forward edge of the battle space, if you're a small unmanned aerial vehicle, like you, you, you probably can't reach back to the cloud. And even if you could, the bandwidth is gonna be so low, you're not gonna get the kind of compute power and result you want. And so that's where the Department of Defense has really been beginning to push the use of algorithmic capability and AI to the edge. And so by the edge, the way we typically define that is if you're at that very forward part of, as we would say for the military, the battle space or the uh, environment that you're really interested in. So in my case, you know, it might be, I'm in an F-18 flying a mission in the South China Sea. It'd be great to have some baseline level of AI capability for analyzing all the data I'm collecting and, and assimilating in my aircraft before I've even landed on the aircraft carrier. Once you're on the carrier, you might have, because you've got more space and power available, you might have some computing capability there kind of in the middle ground. And then when bandwidth and connectivity permits, you could then push this back to those giant mainframes or to the cloud compute environment so you could have even more robust capability. But that's how, you know, when you think about artificial intelligence on the edge, that's how you could have that spectrum of capability. Some capability on the edge, probably not your most robust by any means, but at least it's giving you some early indications of what you are trying to achieve. And then all the way back to the, uh, you know, the back office, if you will, where you're going to have a lot more capability. So just wanted to kind of chat about when you said compute on the edge. So one of the things I wanted, I was curious about too. So you've been on that, you've been on those front lines of operationalizing AI. When you were with Project Maven, you start producing hardware and software capabilities. You send it out to the forward edge of the battle space. We won't get into a lot of specifics for obvious reasons with classification, but but how was how was this technology received? And I ask this because I suspect there's a concern that if you're used to producing, especially intelligence results, you're, you're kind of graded on how accurate you are. But typically when you plug an algorithmic solution in, it's not going to be 100% accurate from the get-go. So how do you kind of balance that? How do you, how do you encourage people to stick with the AI capability so that it can get better over time? Sure. I mean, I can't, I can't speak um, to Maven specifically. I can speak to artificial intelligence generally in the way that AI is typically received when it's employed in an operational setting, which is usually marked by an initial disappointment in the results, right? The, the challenge you have with these capabilities is um, the AI has to sit side saddle with a human being while the human being trains and improves the performance of AI for the specific mission set in which it's to be employed, right? Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, AI is narrow and brittle. So the idea that you're going to develop an artificial intelligence algorithm in a centralized way 
employ it in a highly distributed way and have it solve a thousand unique problems is not particularly um, applicable. It's not real unless you've devised techniques where that can be tailored for each individual use case. Um, and this is true commercially as well. I mean, you know, people have this perception that, you know, the leading industries that employ artificial intelligence just have hundreds and thousands of algorithms in production running across all their networks. I find that to be less true. What they have are a few, you know, Google search, right? Well-tailored algorithms using a lot of AI to perform one or two tasks at way, way better of human function. And they've learned how to leverage those tasks for maximum business, economic, and technical benefit. Um, you know, another example would be social media platforms, right? That employ techniques to recognize relationships or tag content in image and video so they can be correlated, right? Th there aren't a lot of algorithms at play there, but the ones that are, are very good. So it is, a, it is a fact that when you take something that comes from an AI factory, right? Something that's developed, and then you employ it with a user who's on an edge that has to solve a real problem today that's highly specific to their domain, they're likely to be disappointed. And that disappointment could lead to, hey, you know, throw this thing out. I don't need it anymore. Um, that being said, you know, I, I started the podcast by explaining, you know, the five stages, right? And the tendency may be to hear how hard AI is and then dismiss it as a capability and say, you know what? It's not worth the time and the effort. I would say that that is an equally misguided approach to the problem because the fact of the matter is, regardless of, of what the AI looks like when it arrives, eventually over time, the enterprise needs to get used to the idea that if it's a repeatable task um, that can be performed by a machine at greater than human competence, then just the evolution of technology will drive the institution to adopt that, whether they like it or not. So just saying it's not as performant today as it needs to be, and therefore I don't want it, is um, probably a, a poor mentality, and it's up to the leaders to inculcate a vision amongst their warfighter that, you know, for the time being, we need AI to work in concert with people, right? We need the AI to augment rather than automate. We need the, the person to be responsible for providing feedback to this artificial intelligence that we can improve its performance over a period of weeks, months, or years, because ultimately, both the speed of operations and just the necessity of where technology is heading requires that tasks that can be performed by computers will be performed by computers. Um, this is one of the reasons why adoption of the DOD of artificial intelligence has been by commercial standards slow, right? Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you highlighted edge cases where they don't have access to the cloud. I would take it even broader than that and say just the nature of the DOD with silos of data, various bureaucratic organizations, even if you happen to be in the Pentagon, it's unlikely that you've created an environment where your data is aggregated to the point you can create an artificial intelligence. So when we talk about edge compute, that's not just limited to, you know, something that's on the ground in a contingency operation in support of active military operations. That's across the spectrum of DOD operations, including back office functions. So all of that needs to be relooked at, right? And all of that needs to be um, reviewed. And the force needs to have patience with artificial intelligence. Uh, I mentioned Licklider, right? He said it could be five or 10 years or it could be 500 years before AI is cognitive, sufficiently cognitive to be able to, you know, outperform humans in broader functions. And until that time, 
Um, you know, we need to be patient with it, but we need to also be thoughtful about how it's adopted because that day will come. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, kind of like I mentioned in episode two, you know, it reminds me of my time at MIT because uh, one of the departments I worked with was the uh, nuclear engineering department. And so they'd been pursuing uh, a technology called a tokamak reactor, basically nuclear fusion for power because it'd be clean, it'd be safe. There's a lot of things. And the joke was that nuclear fusion was always five years away. So, you know, you could be 50 years later, but it's still five years away. Um, I think that the nice thing about artificial intelligence and, I, and probably the biggest mental hurdle seems to be, again, the ability to embrace that you need to fail fast. Like you said, that's where leadership becomes critically important because a leader can set the expectations for those men and women they lead who are in the process of adopting AI. If you say that we do have a carefully bounded problem, AI is applicable here, it's going to be tough, we're going to get this implemented over time, it won't be 100% perfect and high speed all at the same time, it'll be 60% accurate, but still high speed. But as we continue to interact with it, we'll refine it and we'll get it up to that 90 to 95% accuracy over a period of you know weeks, months, years. But then by the time you've refined it, it's, it works really, really well. And so I think that's what's nice about AI is we've actually seen over the last few years where, the, where organizations have put it in place. You mentioned AlphaGo in episode two. Uh, you know, as an example of a team of researchers that wanted to have a computer system play the game of Go against actual worldwide professionals and to see how, and you know, the first few, well, not even the first few, the first hundreds of iterations of, of a machine playing against a human, the machine fails miserably. But as it is fed more data, as it's given more game strategy, as it plays itself even, uh, you find that it can refine its gameplay uh, to an incredible sense. And then now I think it was a few years ago that it had the big match over in South Korea where it actually defeated the, one of the reigning champions. And so, uh, you know, that's the promise, if you will, of artificial intelligence. And like you said, there's that, there's that element of resiliency and an element of staying positive as you, as you embrace it. So as we continue down this road of upper, you know, operationalizing AI, one thing that strikes me, even from episode two, you made the comment that, DOD has been involved with AI since the 50s and 60s and beyond. What are some sources, you know, because the vast majority of our listeners are not, you know, they don't have a depth of knowledge of AI. They haven't probably really been involved with an AI application or an AI process. Where would you point them to gain more knowledge? I mean, are there particular books or web-based resources you'd say, man, here are my top two or three or four that if you want to be a part of this solution, they should start there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. Obviously, one could just begin to list out the number of resources that are available to educate yourself on, you know, both the associated topics of what AI can do and also how you modernize an institution. Depending on your function, you may be really looking at the latter, right, uh, where your issues around bringing AI are less about, do I need to understand how a neural net works and more about, hey, how do I write a contract to bring in an AI company that can solve this problem on my behalf. It's definitely a different set of, of resources um, that are available. Um, I, you know, I would advise a mixture of reading material. Um, I've devised in the past uh, primers on artificial intelligence and what they've included is everything from, um, you know, the most digestible and cutting edge research papers that detail specifics of algorithms up to and including senior level descriptions of transformation of organizations um, across artificial intelligence. Like a great one, for example, 
that I would highlight, if you look at Google and their great awakening, right, which is when they realized that um, neural nets were going to outperform rules-based systems in translation functions. And the way that they flipped the switch and they said, we're going to move to these technologies, you know, um, completely upending the enterprise and eliminating what had been years of sunk cost investments is a great piece of reading material that is, you know, the nature of the technology is irrelevant. What's, what's relevant is the degree to which the institution was able to achieve the agility and the flexibility needed to adopt that technology as it was brought in. Um, you know, another good example of this and an area that I always highlight for the DOD is to just watch what's happening in the field of autonomous vehicles. Um, it's a great corollary field to DOD applications because there are so many interesting parallels, right? Where um, on one hand, you know, you, you know, you could take the approach if you're building an autonomous vehicle that what I'm going to do is just build a fully autonomous vehicle from scratch, right? I'm going to be, I'm, it's going to be L4, L5. It's going to operate um, without a human being. I'm going to design it as such from the ground up. And that's one technique. Another technique is to say, I'm going to start leveling, right? I'm going to introduce pieces of autonomy into an existing performance vehicle, a parking assist, a lane change. And as I introduce more and more functions of autonomy, I'll stair-step my way up to L5. Very different approaches, but depending on your mission set, you might choose one or the other. And, you know, the other area where there's corollary to the DOD within the autonomous vehicle use case is the lack of room for air. You know, if, um, you know, Google algorithm in search mispredicts your search results and returns something bad or mistags a photo, you know, or, or a social media platform mistags a photo, the ramifications of that are very minimal in most cases, you know, her feelings at worst. Um, if an autonomous vehicle misperforms, even once out of, you know, millions or billions of rides, right, the consequences are life and death. So the question isn't necessarily, you, you, you raise this idea of going from 70 to 95%. In certain contexts, that may be good enough in the DOD. In other contexts, it may not be good enough. You may need closer to 100% or you may need to do very explicit evaluation of what is relevant human performance and do we exceed human performance and do we exceed human performance in a consistent enough way that we can trust this thing to run in an operational setting where there's a variance in the circumstances in which it's being employed, where the backgrounds may be different, the languages may be different, you know, there's contextual differences. Um, you know, uh, Paul Shari in his book, Army of None, describes a great example of this where he hypothetically trains a robot to detect adversaries and trains that robot to adhere to the laws of war. And still, the robot, even when operating at a high level of precision and trained to follow the law of war, has results that are egregious for the force for, from an ethical and moral perspective. So, um, you know, so uh, the, to, to go back to your question, the, the AI resources here are robust. It's the technology, it's the surrounding pieces, it's the in infrastructure, it's the strategy, it's the ethics, and you have to be educated in all of them. If you're not educated in all of them, then, and you own AI implementation within a mission or a workflow, I'd say it's incumbent upon you to educate yourself appropriately. Yeah, it's a great point. In fact, when you're talking about autonomous vehicles and that pathway, it reminds me of a few weeks ago when Elon Musk, the CEO for Tesla, had uh, basically posited that that their autonomous driving capability, their their fully autonomous driving capability, is becoming so valuable that he estimates it to be worth about a hundred thousand dollars 
And then the argument became, well, you're basically getting a car for free. It's, it's the algorithm that's so valuable within that vehicle, which uh, was interesting to hear him say, because it really is a, just a complete sea change in the perspective of the value of AI capabilities and functions. It's also an interesting discussion of the hype around artificial intelligence. If you recall five years ago, the assessment was we would have autonomous vehicles on the road by, you know, in 2015, it was 2016 and 2016 is 2017. It's supposed to be by 2020. It was widespread, right? I can go back and pull the studies that say that's the case yet it's 2020 and they're not ubiquitous, right? There are of course cases of autonomy out on the road today, you know, but it's not like you or I are going to go pick up an L4 or L5 vehicle. And there's much debate in the, you know, in the, um, in the car industry and the academic community degree to which that technology is even feasible within the next decade or beyond, you know, and um, how do you bring the correct levels of testing and evaluation of these capabilities before you can employ them at scale and in production, which is a relevant question for any DOD application of artificial intelligence where there's life and death ramifications. So as we wind down on the part three of the AI episodes, right? So we're talking about operationalizing AI. You know, we've talked about the importance of taking it from a lab and into the actual operating environment in which it will exist, uh, especially for follow-on training. Uh, we talked about the importance of education and knowledge if you're someone who's either going to interact with or, or be responsible for implementing AI. One thing we haven't really talked about, and I think this is important when you, when you think about AI in the real world is, specifically for national security, adversarial AI or adversarial techniques. Because if you think about that example you gave us about an autonomous vehicle and you, you know, it's been trained, uh, it is fully autonomous. We've seen plenty of examples where Tesla vehicles, for an example, can go from point A to point B to include on-ramps, et cetera, with very minimal, if, if in some cases, almost no human intervention. Well, if I can inject myself into that training pipeline so I can change the data as the car is being trained, or I guess more importantly, if I change the way that the input's being received by the car, I could potentially uh, result in what you mentioned, which is like a very catastrophic accident. In fact, someone had shown months ago that you could change the uh, digits on a, on a street sign that would tell you your speed limit, or you could put different artificialities on those signs that are being read and it would have pretty significant impact on how the car would operate. And so I think that's probably one of those inadvertent perils of AI is that it really, at the end of the day, it is still a algorithm. It's a machine. It's going to use however it's been trained. And from the moment you say go, it's going to respond in the way, you know, it, it's, it's, it's interacting with the new data it's receiving. So one, I mean, how at the stage we're at with artificial intelligence adoption and use within the national security arena, how, concerning is the use of adversarial AI? Uh, and what should we be thinking about as far as some of the areas of concern when we implement AI functions? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, you know, there, there are significant challenges specific to adversarial AI that are different than almost any other analysis of where an adversary attempts to disrupt the national security community from executing its mission, right? And those distinctions present an interesting set of challenges that the national security community has to wrestle with. Um, what I mean specifically by that is, um, you know, we discussed that AI is brittle, right? And um, I think we're all well aware of those limitations of AI that it doesn't transpose well from one use case to another use case, unless it's been, you know, appropriately developed to do so and has, you know, diverse training data. 
But now you're actually talking about not that situation. You're talking about a situation where someone is intentionally creating an input variable into a neural net to create uh, an output, right, or a prediction that's wrong in a specific way to induce, um, you know, us, right, as the adversary to take a wrong action, you know. So this could be a few different things. It can be introduced um, information into the operating environment, right, where they know our algorithms have limitations, so it produces randomness or incorrect predictions. It could be um, getting into the compute itself, right, and tailoring the algorithm so that when it's presented with real-world information, it then produces the wrong results. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, quite frankly, the, the research into this domain is still ongoing. Um, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I believe that this is one of the largest investments in our multi-billion dollar DoD research and development community. And it's being tackled by some of the brightest minds at DARPA and others in terms of avoiding the, you know, the adversary's ability to affect the use of artificial intelligence. And I'll, you know, without going into too much detail on the specifics there, I can say that, um, you know, uh, if you're, again, a DOD program manager and you're focused on operational, operationalizing AI for a specific use case, you need to also acquaint yourself with the research that's available on um, how the techniques you intend to use can be spoofed, they can be hacked, they can be, um, you know, they can be mimicked, they can be uh, affected by people looking to produce incorrect results and drive you to bad decisions. Well, Joe, thanks very much again for uh, your time, not only for part two, where you talked to us about AI strategy, but part three, when we talked about operationalizing AI. Uh, very, very just insightful conversations. And I appreciate you spending that kind of time with us. And, and more importantly, I think that for the listeners who so many are interested in the future of AI, what we're doing now, what, how they can be involved in the future, I think they're going to gain a lot from, uh, from both of these parts with you. So thank you very much for spending time with me. Thank you for having me. All right, Mark, uh, great conversation with Joe. Uh, I know that I learned a lot. And of course, we just concluded part three of a three-part series on AI. It's, it's interesting because of listener feedback. We've already had a lot of people clamoring for some additional episodes on AI. We'll take a look at that uh, in the next day or two. And, and we may expand this to either a, a four-part or a five-part series because I know two main themes that people would still love to hear about based on feedback is both, um, you know, there's been a lot written about ethics and the ethical use of artificial intelligence. So I think that might be a fun one to explore. Another one to explore that people are really jazzed about is adversarial AI. And I know some others have uh, discussed this on our podcast in the past, but that's not only what others are seeking to do to, to weaken your artificial intelligence for the United States, but also China, Russia, Israel, you know, what are other nation states, where are they on their pathway to pursue AI? So I'm looking forward to maybe bringing those on board as a, uh, possible episode four and five down the road. But uh, as we always do, I'd love to hear, what did you learn from Joe? What, what uh, kind of piqued your interest? Yeah, so some of the, the takeaways that I was uh, listening for there, and I think uh, Joe did a good job of answering. Uh, you have to have a problem or challenge for AI to solve there. You know, you just can't, how did Joe phrase, you can't just sprinkle AI around. It's got, you know, it, it can be an enabler, but it, it can't be a be all end all. And I thought that was very important for the people to take away. AI can speed up the workforce productivity, but uh, it's also a very uh, narrow uh, form of a form of a, I guess, a technology. Um, 
I don't know if you caught his five stages of AI grief. I won't go into them all again, but I think that was kind of funny, interesting for our listener as well. He, uh, he went into great detail on those, and I thought that was kind of interesting there. And then, like you mentioned earlier, the adversarial techniques there, those are, I think, worthy of another podcast all around. And then one other thing that I think would also be of interest is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term automation bias. I don't want to get too technical for our listeners. But automation bias occurs when humans favor suggestions from automation decision-making systems and ignore possibly contradictory information from a regular you know, personnel. And even if that, even if that uh, contradictory information is correct, and I think we just can't become too reliant in the future on a, on a AI and, you know, forsake it for all else. It's not going to be the be all end all of, of the answers there. So those are my takeaways basically. Yeah. I, I like your takeaways and a couple more. One, I'll foot stomp what you've already said, which is this misperception that's pretty widespread that artificial intelligence can do a lot right now. That you could essentially, you know, if you had a robot machine in a warehouse somewhere, you could upload your AI algorithmic goodness to it and that thing turns into Terminator and like you said, it replaces Colonel Solomon's on the battlefield. Uh, we're nowhere near that point. And much like Steve Iscaravage, shared with us in episode one. Now you've got Joe in episodes two and three really driving home that point that you have to have a very well-defined problem set that you want to solve. And, and frankly, that's a great lesson learned for anybody or any organization that's even thinking about approaching artificial intelligence as a possible solution to speed up your decision-making or to speed up the automation of certain very basic processes. And that's, if you don't have a very well-defined problem, then you're probably throwing your money down a black hole for the near term because, you know, there's plenty of people who are going to jump out of the woodwork to try and help you figure out that problem. Um, but if you don't know yourself what you're trying to solve, then it becomes a, uh, a losing bet. So having that very well-defined problem set is critically important. It's also noteworthy as well when you think about AI that, again, we're nowhere near where the what's called general purpose AI, you know, we've got the specific AI like we discussed, but, it, but you're not at the point yet where you can actually have autonomous systems. They can do very high level thinking for you. So you and others should, should rest comfortably knowing that AI is not out to take your job in the next year or two. That being said, if you do have a very repetitive task, uh, a repetitive job that requires a lot of repetitive tasks, then yeah, that's, that's a job that's actually ripe for AI to come in and take over. We've seen as Elon Musk with Tesla, with his vehicles that can now do a pretty good job of not only natural language processing to understand you, but then it can also, in, in a lot of instances, drive you to your destination, can safely navigate, can do a lot of, so as that continues to develop in the coming years, I think you're going to see where AI enabled solutions can do some pretty neat stuff. Yeah, boom, that's it. You hit it right on the head there. It's uh, definitely made for solving specific problems and an enabler. And, and I'm glad to hear it's not going to be taking away my job anytime soon. So I guess uh, that's, that's Ollie. For those of you listening, this is the, uh, the pride and, and joy of recording during the age of coronavirus. That's my Bernadoodle, Ollie, who uh, is very jealous that we've recorded something on the order of 12 or 13 episodes without him. He definitely wants to take part. And I suspect he hears my voice somewhere, but he can't see me. So he's trying to find me. But uh, with that being said, another great episode, Mark. Thanks for your time. It was great talking to Joe Larson for episodes two and three. And of course, all the way back in episode one with Steve Iscaravage for the three-part uh, podcast on artificial intelligence. Uh, for those of you listening, if you haven't done so already, please follow Holding the Line. Go ahead. If you haven't, uh, give us five stars. 
leave us a comment and uh, feel free to reach out if you have some feedback that you think we could benefit from. But with that being said, we'll look forward to catching you next time and uh, we'll see if we can sneak in a couple extra episodes on possibly the ethics of artificial intelligence incorporation as well as adversarial AI. So Mark, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Guy. That was great.